goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Father, we want to give you everything today. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Why don't you have a seat? been going to Capital City off and on for ooh, like all my life basically. I want to get baptized because that is what he wants for me and that is his plan for me and I want my whole life, I want to be seeking his will and what my steps are in his path, not my own. And to me, I feel like that's really me saying, okay, I'm all in this is my plan or this is your plan for me and once i get baptized that's that like my plans are your plans what do you want from me and so i just feel like it's me giving my life to him officially and i wasn't asking him to change me he was doing it on his own i had anxiety i had depression i was angry all the time i don't know i felt empty before him and then I got into my word and I started building a relationship with him and it changed my life. I was living for the world. I wasn't living for him. I, all of my choices were what does the world want? What does the world say and not what does his word say? And so I feel like he gave me so much grace and he was so patient with me waiting for me to let go of the world and to grab on to him. He was very, very gracious. I mean, he could have been like, no, I'm done with her. She's not listening to me. She's not getting it. She doesn't want to do this. But instead he's like, I love her and I'm going to wait on her. And he gave me literally every ounce of grace that he had. And finally he won out in the end. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been doing a sermon series called The Trail of Grace. We've been looking at these examples of God's grace in the Old Testament and ways in which he's cared for people in ways that were unexpected. It's been a powerful series. The majority of this series has played out in this kind of a way. We've seen God do amazing things, and then we see ourselves kind of in that chair center stage where it's about us. Even though God's doing these great things, we're those recipients. We're the ones who get that grace, and it's been powerful. Last week, we, we took a little bit of a twist. We moved ourselves out of center stage, and we went off to the side, and we looked inward, and we considered what it looks like to, to witness somebody else receiving the grace of God. And it was a little bit convicting. It was a little bit challenging about the ways in which we view other people receiving the grace of God. This week, we're going to hold a similar position. We're going to sit side stage. We're going to look inward at the seat, and we're going to put someone else there before we get there I want to ask you this question if you were God what would you do if you're God even just for a day what would you do what are the things that you would want to address what are the things that you would think what how would it play out in your mind right and and I have all sorts of ideas many of them probably embarrassing and so I went to the internet and I found other people's ideas of what they would do if they were God for a day and, and you get some incredible answers like this. Like some people say that they would try to solve world peace, maybe solve poverty, maybe end world hunger, maybe wipe out corrupt governments or end cancer or heal people with disabilities. Some people are a little bit more playful. They say, uh, you know how we have all these mythological creatures that we've made up in our own mind where we kind of mix two things together and put them together? They say if they were God, they'd actually make those real. Okay, so that'd be fun. There are, some who, uh, there are some who say that they would like to make plants have the ability to talk. You have communication with plants. That would be something. Some people talk about the things that they would exterminate, specifically mosquitoes. That makes sense to me. There's an actual day of the year for this. It's weird. You know how there's a holiday all the time now? January 9th is actually called Play God Day. And it's actually, like, it sounds like maybe it's sarcastic or, or almost sacrilegious, but it, it really actually kind of isn't. There's this group of people who have this idea that if we can dream up all these different things that we would want to do if we were God, what if one day a year we all actually tried? Not, not just, not just self-serving, but the things that we think we could correct. What if a large group of people actually did some stuff all at the same time to try to make the world a better place? What incredible impact we could have. It's kind of a neat idea. 
movies and entertainment have even jumped into this kind of a question. There's a couple movies that you may be familiar with. We have Bruce Almighty, which is a, a more comedic look at it. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 uh, considers this celestial being whose name is Ego. That's significant, all right? But even in these, we see some of the challenges that you might face if you're all of a sudden God. We even see some of the depravity, the ways in which if we were God, the ways that we would be self-serving and just meet our own interests, right? Now, the reality is that every single one of these ideas has a problem. Every idea that we come up with of what we would do if we were God, all of them has a problem. I think that if you were God, even for a day, you'd find out that you aren't actually smarter than God. And I think that if I were God for a day, I think all of you would be very glad that I'm not God for more than a day. And vice versa, right? Not just what is it like to be God or what would you do if you were God. What is it like to be God? What do you think God feels? What do you think God experiences? I want to I have, have God come and sit in this chair this morning. I want us to sit center or side stage. I want us to look inward and consider what it's like to be him. When you think of, of God and, and being God, do you anticipate it being a joyful experience? Do you think of like looking into this world and seeing the good things that happen or seeing when people treat each other well or love one another, even, even like the praise and the worship that he receives, do you think it makes him feel joyful? Is that the experience? Is that the feeling that he gets? Is it kind of like when we have kids and they make the right decision, or you see them treat someone well, or maybe they even thank you for something. I know that never happens, but when it does, and that warm feeling kind of builds, like, is that what it's like to be God? Is it exciting to be God? I think of his power, and I think of his authority. It sounds to me kind of like being a boss or being the president. That seems kind of nice, right, to just be the guy in charge. I think of his creativity. I imagine the most gifted artist in the world would love to have the creativity of God. The ability to just speak and for things to come into existence, it'd be powerful, it'd be, it'd be incredible, right? Is that what it's like to be God, just that excitement? Maybe it's tiring. It's interesting to me this week as we were talking about this in our staff meeting, I, I mentioned that I was going to ask this question, what does God feel? And instantly, Alethea, like she didn't even think, she just like cut in instantly. She says, tiring. And it, you know, it caught me off guard. Now, if you don't know Alethea, you should know. She's Doc's daughter. All right, so that's going to be important to this story, all right? Alethea says that when she thinks about being God, she envisions it being something like a mother to 8 billion needy children. <laughs> and she says the only thing I can think of is being tired or exhausted. You should know that Alethea has a total of two children. <laughs> the problem is I think they have part of Doc's DNA. <laughs> is that what it's like to be God? Just always constantly having someone that needs something, always there. Is that what it feels like to be God? What about this? Is it agony? Is it pain? Sometimes it hurts being a parent, doesn't it? You see your kids fight or, or not get along. Is that what it's like to be God? He looks into the world and he sees the hatred that exists between man. Does it wound him? Does God look down into this world and, and he witnesses addictions and diseases and violence and all the other ways that we hurt ourselves and the ways that we hurt those who are around us? Is that what it feels like to be God? Like whenever we have someone that we love who's in the hospital, is that what it feels like? God looks into this world and he sees people who constantly choose to not worship him or to choose not to have a relationship with him. He constantly sees people turning their back on him. Is that what it feels like to be God? Is that what he feels? Is that his experience? As we, as we look in, into our own lives, if you've got a child who's maybe walked away from you or walked away from the family, who's broken relationship and the pain that that causes within you, is that what God feels? There's a few places in scripture when God pulls back the curtain and lets us see what's behind. It's not very often, it's not very frequent, but there's a couple places where God shows himself and lets you see what it is to be him, where he allows you to see what it looks like to feel the things that he feels. It's not very often, but when it does, I should let you know, it's strong language. 
When God does this, he uses some really strong language, some really offensive words, highly offensive words. It's not necessarily words that I use or that I want to use, but it's highly offensive language. In fact, this week, in working for this sermon, preparing the sermon, I, I type my stuff out on my computer in Microsoft Word. I've used it for, what, like 25 years now, okay? And as I'm working on this sermon, I noticed that there was an icon that I'd never seen before in any of my documents. You know how, like, when you spell something wrong or you have a grammar problem, it brings up, like, the little squiggly line things to tell you that there's a problem, right? I'm going through this document, and I'm typing out some of these things I'm finding from God where he reveals what it feels to be him. And I go and I click on these icons. It's this little dashed purple line underneath some words. And I click on it, and it brings up this warning. It says that this language may be offensive to your reader. It's interesting to me. I, I have this practice as I prepare for a sermon where I actually speak to the computer and I let it dictate out some of the things that I'm saying. And as I do that, I go back into the document and I kind of clean it up, do a lot of editing and, and working through it. And at the end of it, as I'm going through it, I find that some of the words I'd said in the course of this message were actually starred out. They weren't actually even printed in, 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 in with words and letters, right? But it was just like these, these little symbols. When God reveals what it feels like to be him, it's some offensive language. And two weeks ago, we talked about Jeffrey Dahmer, and last week we talked about the Assyrians, and now, now today, this one too. And I want you to know that I don't want to offend, and I don't want to use many of these words that I'm going to say today. I don't really actually want to say them. But I don't feel comfortable softening the offense of God. When God says something, when he says, this is how I feel and this is what I'm experiencing, I think it's worth mentioning those things to you. And I want you to know this just right on the front end, that if we soften the message of what God says, it means that we also soften his grace on the back end. If we pretend like what he said is less than what he means by it, then at the end, his grace isn't as marvelous. And at the end of this message, I think you're going to see a grace that's absolutely mind-blowing. It's going to stun you. It's going to catch us off guard. And if you'll allow yourself to hear the offense, then you're going to get to see something beautiful. And so that's going to lead us to the story of this guy named Hosea. Hosea is one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible, maybe my absolute favorite. It is a powerful story with a very significant message, and I think it changes lives. And it starts right off the bat. Hosea is this prophet in the Old Testament we don't know a whole lot about him. We don't have a whole lot of information off of him other than this one story. We have Hosea in the book of Hosea. It's named after him. He's this Old Testament prophet, and he receives this word from God. God shows up in chapter 1, and the very second verse of the, of the book, right off the bat, he says, Go take yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing. From the Lord. Now, for a moment, let's just pause and recognize that being a prophet is not awesome. Okay? You guys remember last week we talked about a prophet and he runs the opposite direction when God tells him something to do and he ends up in a fish? You guys remember that? This week, I think Hosea might be willing to trade places with Jonah. Right? But he does it. It's a wild story. And on top of that, this word adulteress, that's not the word. That's not what God says. That's not the message. This is the NIV translation of this passage. That's not what he said. It's too PG of a word. It's too highly edited. Because we're not talking about a spouse who cheats. We're not talking about a spouse who has an affair. That's not what this is. We're talking specifically about a spouse who's made a career of adulterous behavior. You understand what I'm saying? Other translations say it much much more straightforward. The NLT says it this way, go and marry a prostitute. The ASV says, go take yourself a wife of whoredom. The NIRV, which is the New International Reader's Version, it's a much more plain way of speaking, uh, just translation of the Bible, says, go marry a woman who has sex with anyone she wants. The RSV says, go take to yourself a wife of harlotry. The message very plainly says, find a whore and marry her. This isn't an adulterous woman. Adultery is not what we would call this. And she's already adulterous. This isn't something that happens after she's committed to Hosea. This is who she is before he ever even knows her. This is her story. This is her life. This is who she is. And God says, I want you to go find a woman with these kinds of qualifications. Probably not what I would want to sign up for. 
And then God says the land is guilty of the vilest adultery. That's not true. The land isn't guilty. He's not talking about the land. He's talking about the people. Because really, truly, right off the front end, I need you to know this story isn't actually about Hosea's wife. Her name is Gomer, by the way. That's a red flag. Okay. The story isn't about Gomer. It's not about her. It's, about, it's not about the land. It's about the people. It's the people who live in this land, and they're guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. That's what's going on. God's using Hosea to tell a story. There's spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery is taking place among God's people. And if you're careful, if you look closely, you'll recognize that they aren't all that different than us. You can do a survey real quick and look through just the kings of Israel. There's a point in history where Israel, God's people, actually has a civil war and they split. And they, come in, they, they turn into two nations. You have Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And the kings of Israel, every single one of them, without exception, is absolute trash. Horrible people. Horrible leaders who constantly lead their nation away from God. That's spiritual adultery. There's a king who comes along, a guy named Abijam. Abijam ends up marrying 14 different women. I'll let you know that Abijam sounds the best at the end of this list. All right? He marries 14 different women, and with each of these women comes a different God who he chooses to worship. There's a guy named Ahaz. Ahaz worships the gods of Assyria, and he commits what the prophets at his time call spiritual whoredom. Rehoboam? sets up what's called cultic shrines to foreign gods where there are male prostitutes who have sex with other men and women. They're not selective, right? And all in this idea that somehow they could compel their foreign god to reign on the crops. I wish you understood how much I've edited that story to share with you. There's a guy named Manasseh who's a king. He's so twisted and messed up that he actually burns children alive to show his zeal for a foreign god named Molech who demands such things. And it all starts with one king, a guy named Jeroboam. When the, when the nation splits and it becomes two separate nations, Israel to the north, Judah to the south, Jerusalem is located in Judah. And so Jeroboam, the new king of Israel, recognizes that if his people have to go to Jerusalem to worship, then they'll have allegiance to Judah and Jerusalem. And so he decides, I have to do something different. I have to separate this out. And so he builds some golden cows that he can set up as shrines for worship so that his people will stay in his land to worship. What I want you to know is that when God uses this language, he's not just making it up. He's using brazen language because there's brazen spiritual adultery. And if you look closely, you'll recognize that there are people just like us. People who will choose to worship anything other than God. So Hosea goes and he finds this woman, Gomer, and he marries her. And they start this life together. And the narrative is very quick. The whole book of Hosea is 14 chapters. We only have narrative telling the story in chapter 1 and in chapter 3. But in chapter 1, it goes very quickly. In, chapter, in verse 2, he's told to go marry her. He finds Gomer. He marries her. By verse 4, we see that it says that they have a child named Jezreel. It's a little boy. And God says, you're going to name him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. We say it's hard to be a prophet. It's also hard to be a prophet's kid. There's some rough names. And I know that doesn't mean a whole lot to us because Jezreel doesn't really mean anything to us, okay? But this would be like if you go back to the, the kids' area and you find that there's like a second-grade boy whose name is Twin Towers. Like it just stirs something, doesn't it? Like, it doesn't fit. Like, why would you name your child after such an awful thing? God says, no, I want you to go and do that because the people need to remember what it is that they've done. And it doesn't sound like grace, does it? It sounds harsh. In verse 6, they have a second child. I think it's one of the most beautiful names in the Bible, Lo Ruhamah, your little girl named Lo Ruhamah. For I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should forgive them. Lo Ruhamah, as beautiful as it sounds, it means not loved. Can you imagine being a small little girl? Every time you hear your name, it's a reminder that you're not loved. Every time someone speaks your name, it's a reminder to them that God no longer loves them. It's harsh language, and it doesn't sound like grace, does it? Verse 9, they have a third child, another little boy. His name is Loami, which, again, I think is beautiful. God says you're going to calm that because you are not my people, and I'm not your God. Loami means not my people. 
God's making a pretty clear message to the Israelites here. It's harsh. It's difficult, right? God wants them to know that he's moved on. He's over them. He's moving past them. He's letting them go. He's leaving them behind. He's breaking up with them. It doesn't sound like grace. It sounds like Taylor Swift, right? Like I think if she's here, she's probably getting some inspiration right now. Like never getting back together kind of stuff, right? So what do you do with a God in a sermon series called A Trail of Grace when you see him speak to his people and say, I don't love you anymore and you're not my people. I'm over you. I'm leaving you behind. Where's the grace? We're nine verses into the book. Verse 10 is where it turns. Very next verse, God says, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured or counted. If you remember, this is a promise that he made to a guy named Abraham. We talked about him weeks ago. God made a promise to him that he was going to make his descendants like this massive nation, and God comes back and remembers that promise. He acknowledges, I don't love you anymore. You're not my people. I don't like this. We're breaking up, but I'm not going to go back on my promises. And then, in fact, he adds to it. He says, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, which I love that because this is the place Like he's just now saying that in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, they will instead be called sons of the living God. What is it like to be God? What is it like to be him? It means loving someone even though they refuse to be a part of who you are. He's going to uphold his promises. He's not going to love based off of his feelings. He's going to love them based off of who he is. Hang on to that idea. Kind of sounds a lot like being a parent, right? I've got some kids, and there's days when I wonder why I have kids. And yet there isn't anything that could happen that would make me love them any less. It's kind of like that. And it sounds really nice. It's a really nice kind of little story as it starts out. Like I said, chapter 2 kind of goes into this poetic, prophetic language. And then in chapter 3, we come back to the narrative. And it's very short. There's not a lot to it. But in verse 1, starting back in the narrative, God comes back to Hosea and he says, Go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another and is an adulteress. In chapter 1, God calls him to go find this woman, Gomer, and he does. He finds her, and he brings her in. And we don't get a lot of details. We know that they have some children together. We know that there's some form of a valuable relationship there, right? Even though I think she probably questions his naming of children, okay? But there's something there. It seems like he's probably rescued her out of the life that she'd had at some extent. It seems like she's been able to move on from who she once was. You've got to think from the outside looking in that she probably never felt better, never felt more love, never felt happier. And yet in chapter 3, in chapter 3, God comes back and says, you have to go show your your love to her again. She left him. She leaves him, guys. After everything that he'd provided, after all the love that he'd shown, she leaves him. She went back to her old life. You know what it feels like to be God? It feels like being married to someone who refuses to be faithful. I'm not talking about like, like they failed once, they made a mistake. I'm not talking about someone who's struggling to be faithful. I'm talking about someone who refuses. They're in the relationship, but they have no interest in any pretenses as if they're going to be faithful to you. Can you imagine a relationship like that? And then staying committed. Can you imagine that? We look at God in the seat center stage. This is what it feels like to be him. He doesn't quit the relationship. He maintains his commitment. He stays in it. And he comes back to Hosea and he says, show your love to your wife. Again, even though she's loved by another, even though she's an adulteress, do you understand that if Hosea showed up in my office for counseling and laid out what was going on and said to me, this is what's happening, and he says, what should I do? That's not the advice I'm giving. If God shows up in my office and he's like, Ben, I got to talk to you about the Israelites, man, they're awful, and he goes through it all. This isn't the advice I'm giving God. I'm like, God, they're trash. Move on. Leave them behind. This is maybe my favorite part. If 
If you're the kind of person who writes in your Bible, you circle or highlight things, this is the part where you need to get that pen, you need to get ready because you need to see what God says next. The very next thing that God says is love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. I love this. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. The whole purpose of this, because it's not about Gomer, it's not about Hosea. The whole message here to Hosea is I want you to do what I do. You're gonna love her the way that I love the Israelites. And the very next thing that Hosea says is, so I bought her. You want to know what it looks like to be God, what it feels like to be God. You want an illustration of what happens when God's doing something? He buys us, doesn't he? He buys us. And so Hosea, he goes and buys her. I want you to see this. Hosea doesn't just go find her. She's not living with some other dude. She's not, she's not trying to play house in some other family. She, she, she's, that's not where she's at, guys. She's owned by someone else. She has gone back to her life in such a manner that she doesn't even have like her own independence. She's owned by someone else. She provides services that somebody else profits of over. Do you understand what we're saying here? And when Hosea goes and finds her, she's standing on the auction block. And she's not even worth that much. The his, like the historical research, you look into this. What Hosea pays to get her is about half of what a going female slave at that time would have been worth. She's worthless. When he offers on her, people probably laugh. There's whispering going on. It's embarrassing. It's offensive. She has no value in human eyes. God says the Israelites, they have no value in human eyes. Man, they're worthless. They have sold themselves to so many different foreign gods. They have zero value. How much value do you have? How much value do you have? And can you imagine what Gomer would have thought when he heard or when she hears Hosea's voice? Can you put yourself in that position? Can you even try to understand what it would be like to hear Hosea's voice in that moment when he calls out a, a number, a bid, in order to buy her? Do you think she felt shame? or pain, or embarrassment? Do you think there's any part of her that felt relief? Or felt love? It's a crazy story. It's not about Gomer. It's not about Jose. It's, it's about the Israelites, but it's about us. It's a guy named Preston Sprinkle that we've been using. He wrote a book called Scandalous of Grace that we've been using for this series. Here's how he says it. He sums up the whole story with this. Go marry a whore, Hosea. Love the unlovable, and then you will know what it's like to be on the divine side of unconditional love. Do you understand that we celebrate when we're in this seat, center stage? We love how free grace is. Do you know it's not free for him? Do you know that it comes with a price? Do you understand that when he tells Hosea, love the Israelites the way, or love Gomer the way that I love the Israelites, and, and Hosea says he goes and he buys her back, that that's the perfect illustration of what our God has done for us. That it's cost something. The rest of this book of Hosea is just back and forth, right? This is this poetic, prophetic language, and it talks a lot about the vileness of Israel. Then it talks about the judgment of God. And then it talks about this vileness of Israel. And then it talks about the anger of God. And then it goes back, and it talks about the vileness of Israel. And then it goes back to God, who offers this plea, this begging of the nation of Israel to please just repent because he loves them so very much. And it concludes in chapter 14. In verse 2, Hosea takes this message to the Israelites. God gives it to him, and he takes it to the Israelites. Hosea speaks to them, and he says, Take words with you and return to the Lord. Israelites, do this. Say to him, Israelites, just go. Just say these words to God. Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips, that we can respond in worship and praise back to you. Just say the words. And two verses later, God says this. He says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. I love them freely. 
It's this tone about it. It's as if God is just pleading with them, begging them, will you please just come home with me? Will you please just come home with me? What does God feel? What is it like to be God? I think it hurts. I think it's like having a wound that never heals and it just keeps getting broken open. I think it's the pain of watching the same self-destructive decisions that are being made by the same person over and over and over again, and yet God perseveres in his pursuit of us. It doesn't push him away. He overcomes the pain and he continues pressing forward. He loves us past our sin. And if we can invite God out of the chair so that we can sit back down in it and we consider what it is to be center stage here because his grace, this love of his, it's all about us. I think you'll see that God loves you because of who he is. It's not because of who you are. God loves you because of who he is and because of what Christ has done. That's it. Quite frankly, I'm getting a little tired of hearing people say that they're not good enough for God to love them. If that's your excuse, it's time for you to get over it. It's not true. I think that's lies of the devil. As if somehow you could eventually be good enough for God to love you. Do you know you can't get there? You know what? There isn't anything you could ever do that would make God love you. You can't ever get clean enough. Did you also know that there isn't anything you could ever do? You can't get dirty enough for him to not love you. Sprinkle again puts it this way. He says God doesn't save people who have it all together. We got to get past that idea. If you're waiting, thinking you have to get it all together, that's wrong. He doesn't wait until we have it all together. Instead, he saves whores. He saves prostitutes and porn stars. And just the same Bible college professors and preachers who stand on stage and the stay-at-home moms who wear head coverings in church because God loves to create righteousness out of nothing. It's what he does. You can't create righteousness. You can't be good enough. His grace is marvelous, guys. It's so over the top. You can't downplay who you are because then you miss the grace of who he is. We are all vile sinners. We're all addicted to the muck and sludge of our own depravity. We are victims beaten down by other people's depravity, and that makes us perfect magnets for God's scandalous grace. It's beautiful, guys. It's beautiful. And what that means is that we have a room full of gomers. I don't know if you've ever been called gomer. I, I hadn't. I don't particularly like it. But man, it's your story. It's my story. It's true whether you're a Jesus follower or whether you're not a Jesus follower. It's all true. We're all the same. The truth is I will live and worship anything other than God. My natural inclination, I will choose to worship absolutely anything. I give myself away. And yet we have a God who won't quit. We have a God who's bought us with a price. Will you please go home with him? Would you please just choose to go home with him? A month ago as I was looking at this message and starting preparing for it, I, I wanted to find an image to help us see what God feels. And I looked through all sorts of different artwork and different things and I couldn't I couldn't find a picture that I felt adequately communicated how it is that God feels about us and how he feels in that center chair kind of a thing. And so I called a friend of mine up in Michigan and I asked him if he could put together something, if he could come up with some sort of piece of art to help us see it, and he did. What I want you to do is this. I want you to watch this video. Our band is gonna sing this song over. I want you to listen and read the words. I want you to look at the image and I want to stir you. I want you to see just how much this God really, truly does love. Sometimes marriages don't work. Sometimes babies die. Sometimes rehab turns to relapse and you're left just asking why. For all the prayers I pray, I still wonder if he's real. And if he is, 
is how is he choosing who he does and doesn't heal I've tried to run from Jesus I started holy wars I've tried the patient waiting and the kicking down the doors I've cursed his name in anger with my fists raised to the sky and in return all he's ever been is kind. And I've burned my share of bridges, learned to tuck my tail and run. I watched the wreckage in the review from all the crooked things I've done. And I know that he forgives me, but it's hard to forgive myself. Can't help but think that amazing grace is for everybody else. I've tried to run from Jesus. I've started holy wars. I've tried the patient waiting and the kicking down the doors. I've cursed his name in anger with my fist raised to the sky. And in return, all he's ever been. Ever been as kind. And I know I wasn't there, but when I look up to the cross, I see the darkest day in history, and I guess that's what kindness calls. I've tried to run from Jesus, I started holy tried the patient waiting and the kicking down the doors. He knows I don't deserve it, but he's never changed his mind. All he's ever been is kind. All he's ever been We're going to step into a time of communion in just a moment because this is where we celebrate how we've been bought. We have a God who didn't just sit back and wait for us to figure out. He hasn't waited for us to clean ourselves enough. Instead, he sent his son on our behalf and he paid the price. That's the language we use. Love, love your wife the way that I've loved the Israelites. It means that he goes and he buys her back because that's what God has done for us. He went and he bought us. And so we come to the table every week. We do this because we don't want to ever come together and not make this central to who we are and what we're about. And so we come back and we come to the table and we see the bread and we see the juice and the reminders of his body and his blood that is sacrificed on our behalf. We need it. We need it in our mouth and our tongue to be able to remember to taste to interact with his work for us. And when we come to the tables, it's also an opportunity for us to respond and worship to him in the form of giving. And so if you're part of this family, if, you're, if you call Cap City home, we have boxes set up where that's a, a place where you can come and bring your, your gifts, your tithes uh, to, to Cap City and, and participate in the work of this family. If you want to give even more than that, we have these white buckets on the tables that we use just simply to bless people in our community and, and, and uh, worship him in that kind of a form.
I want to invite you over the next about 15 minutes to really seriously evaluate where you're at with God right now. And I want you to evaluate if you've never taken that step, if you've never put your faith in him, if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to ask you why. Why not? What's your excuse? What's the reason for holding you back? My hope is that through this series as we've gone through it that you've been able to see just how magnificent the grace of God is and there isn't any reason why you wouldn't be uh, capable of receiving it. It's for you. It's offered to you. We've had, this is now our second baptism this morning, which is really, really cool. We need more today. Not because I need it, not because, because I want to feel better, but because you, you need to. If that's where you're at, it's time to go, guys. It's time for you to, to put off whatever it is that's holding you back and keeping you from having that relationship with God. Today, let it be the day. Let this be the day. I'm going to be sitting right up here. We've got people back who are ready to make this work out. We have everything that you need to be baptized very literally right now, okay? So during communion, during the next couple songs we sing together, this is your opportunity to come and to respond, and let's get in the water, and let's start life with Jesus, all right? Why don't you stand, and let's go to the table.
have a seat. Just seat for just a couple of minutes. We're not quite done. We've still got another song to come. Just want to warn you a little bit. It's going to be a lot of fun, though. But uh, just a couple of things. First of all, just some family business. Uh, tonight for our kids, we're going to have uh, Jacob Cook. He was a golfer for the Franklin County team and then for University of Kentucky. He's now a golf coach at the University of Kentucky. He's going to be speaking to our middle and high schoolers this evening. And so if you've got a middle or high schooler, if you are one of them, be sure to come back this evening for that. It's going to be really, really good. I think they meet at 530 and then they start their worship at 615 over in our student worship center. We also want to make sure that you have a chance to connect with Capital City. There's a variety of ways that you can connect with Capital City. You'll see them on screen. Our website is at capcity.info. We've got a church center app. You might want to pull out your camera and then just take a picture of that if you need that. Different ways to connect with Capital City. The church center app will help you get informed about what's taking place at any one of our services and a way that you can sign up for different things. Right now, media. That's some place where you have, there's a variety of Bible studies that you, can, uh, that you can participate in, that you can have access to as a part of this church family. A lot of different ways you can connect here at Capital City, but the main thing is our job is to help you connect with God. That's what we're here for, right? We were made to do life with God for God, God's way. That's why God put us here, and that's what we're trying to do together here at Capital City. And a lot of you guys, I think, still really need to get that started, right? I mean, it starts with becoming a Jesus follower. And the Bible tells us that when you hear the gospel, you repent, you basically have a change of mind, so you're living for God now, right? You confess Jesus before men. You're baptized. That's just one of those things that Jesus expected. We had a baptism before the this service this morning. We had a baptism during the service this morning. Some of you guys haven't done that yet. That's expected of Jesus' followers. It's not what makes you a Christian. He's what makes you a kid. But it's one of the things that he has told us to do. Now, if you have not done that yet, you really need, we're going to, Ben and I are going to hang around here at the end of the service. We'd love to talk to you. Let's get you baptized next week, right? Some of you guys just need to go ahead and get it done. We'll have everything ready for you. But please, don't just sit on that. If, you, if you're not going to do it this morning and you need to get it done, let's get it done next week. Okay? Steve? Hey, I'm very excited about what God's doing. If you are as well, go ahead and stand. We're going to sing one more together. I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. Hallelujah, I'm blessed. I'm so blessed. Hallelujah, I'm blessed. Trouble knocking at my door.
glad that you're here. Be blessed. Show the world how blessed you are that you are accepted by your grace. Go ahead and tell the world. Go ahead and go tell the world, Shakur. Yeah.